Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Here's your host, Lara Fedorov. Thank you for tuning in to UX Radio. Today's show features a special insider view of Louis Rosenfeld. Lou is the co-founder of Argus Associates, founder of the IA Summit, and co-author of the well-known Polar Bear book called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. Lou is an IA consultant and manages Rosenfeld Media. Now, Rosenfeld Media is not just a publisher of books. They truly publish expertise. You can find a wide array of UX books on their site, in addition to teaching and consulting. I was curious about the publishing industry, but before we get too far, here's how we got started. Uh, I come from the um, far north suburbs of New York City. Um, I'm the youngest of five boys, um, and uh, actually we live next door to my four male cousins uh, who are all older than I, and so um, I'm kind of in theory the youngest of nine boys. I think all my neuroses are basically due to that unfortunate position in the, uh, in the birth order. I didn't really think much about the future like most kids, and that persisted until... Um, I was about a week away from graduating college. And, you know, sort of interesting because you get all whipped into a frenzy over your final papers and exams. And then suddenly you're, you're almost done with those and you realize you have to move out and go somewhere. And uh, like a lot of us, I had no thought about what that was going to be. I, I, I kind of liked computers a little bit. This was 1987 and I'd owned a a Macintosh for a couple of years and I thought maybe I would try to teach people how to use them because I seem to be good at that and um, I went around and talked to people and who were teaching computers and there was no interest whatsoever and um, I ended up getting a job um, as um, a salesman in a, in a furniture store and um, it was the worst job ever. It was one of those jobs where not only did we sell used the new furniture, but we also sold used furniture. And what do people do? They come in and they say, I like this used couch, but it's got a stain on it. Can you get me a, a different one? It's like, wait a minute, it's a used couch. <laughs> That's the way it is. That's why it's inexpensive. I learned very quickly I didn't like retail, new or used. And I did keep feeling the pull of this computer stuff. And so after a while, um, in this horrible job selling furniture. Um, finally got out of that and decided to go back to grad school like a lot of people do who have no clue. And um, I thought, you know, library science sounds interesting. What drew you to that? Well, so I knew I was interested in computers, but I didn't think I could program them. I didn't think I had the abilities, and I, I, I think that was probably a fair assessment. Um, but I also felt like I could learn about computery stuff maybe in an MBA program. Um, you know, I knew about information systems uh, tracks in business schools. But that was also sort of unattractive because then I'd have to take courses in accounting and things like that. But this library science stuff was promising because they had databases, which were interesting, and those databases were full of things like book information. And I thought that was okay. 
And I knew these skills would be useful, but if I couldn't find a job doing the technical computer-related aspects of library science, then well, I could always get a job as a reference librarian in a traditional library setting. You know, I went to University of Michigan uh, Library School. It was called the School of Information at the time. And just to give you a little bit of um, context for where we were technologically uh, at that time, so one of the big attractive courses to me was online searching, where we would search commercial online databases. And uh, things like Dialogue, LexisNexis. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with those, those, uh, those database services cost hundreds of dollars an hour to use, like three, $400 an hour for some of them. Why were they so expensive? Because they could be. There was really no other alternatives. This is before the internet was really uh, used as a business uh, platform. And so these are, you know, they had to build their own network services that were closed networks that you would subscribe to and a big billing system on top of them uh, and so forth. But they had a captive audience. And so librarians would learn how to use these services. And it was frightening. It was absolutely frightening. Why? Well, um, we had a very frightening professor who would tell you, you better not screw up. So you're going to prepare all your searches in advance. Not only the initial search, but plan B, plan C, plan D. So you don't have to figure that stuff out while the clock is ticking and the dollars are going down the toilet. And people would search with their hands shaking. They were so afraid. And to give you a little more context, these were um, systems that were using acoustic couplers, you know, the old phones that you'd shove into this holder that had that would hold the the, the handset in place, and um, it was a true dial-in at what was it, two hundred and forty? Oh, I don't even is it even bought? I don't even remember <laughs> if that's the right term anymore. We we take that stuff for granted. Anyway, it was slow and painful and and. Um, you know, that's kind of how it was back then in a library school in 1988. The thing with library school, though, was that you learned some really incredible skills that had nothing to do with technology, like reference, like how to ask people questions about their needs, and how to listen, and how to qualify. So when they come up to the reference desk and ask you, I need the red book. Well, um, what kind of red book? Can we talk a little bit about what more specifically you're looking for? And not just asking questions, but observing people. You know, if a child asked you that question, you might handle that differently than if a tenured faculty member asked you that question. And uh, we learned cataloging, which is another fantastic skill. How do you describe information? How, do, how does metadata work? How does metadata help you not only describe information, but then support things like searching and browsing? And those were incredible skills. And at the same time, the internet was starting to take off. This is when the internet was things like Telnet and FTP and Archie and Veronica and Jughead and Waze and a bunch of other things that were not well branded, by, as you could probably tell by the names of them, not necessarily easy to use, 
and just pretty confusing because they were hard-to-use tools that sat on top of the concept of the Internet, which was not a familiar concept in 1988, 1989, 1990. Um, so while I was in grad school, one of the professors uh, there, Joe Jaynes, and I decided to start a business on the side that would teach people how to use those tools. And we called it Argus Associates. So this is like 90, 91 maybe. And we started teaching courses that help librarians and educators and others, mostly in Michigan, use the internet. What were some of those courses? How to use the internet, that's basically <laughs> it. It was pretty much how to understand and start taking advantage of the internet. And I finished the master's degree in 90, and so we were doing this work on the side, and I was actually working for the School of Information, setting up networks and teaching staff how to use computers, and also doing some work in the University of Michigan libraries on some new tech projects. And one of those projects was this uh, centered around this new thing called Gopher. Gopher was really cool, because not only was it on the internet, but it was like these interesting things, let's call them gopher servers, but think of them as sites, like websites, pockets of content that could connect to each other, unlike most of the rest of the internet that had come before, which were still somewhat closed and needed to log in separately from one to the next. These were open, and your gopher could connect to someone else's gopher, and so on and so forth. And for those of you who don't know anything about gopher, it's all hierarchy menu systems and we were all really hot on it before the web really broke and so I got a uh, part of my work was taking US Census files and getting them out of wherever they were I think they were primarily on uh, tape they were loaded the digital ver versions of those, those data were on data tapes and putting them on gopher servers so that people could actually get at census data which is pretty cool you know so I was doing that kind of stuff um, teaching people how to use the internet, using those reference and cataloging skills was really handy there. And then around that time, it, like I started teaching at the university, at, the, at my old grad school with Joe Janes, teaching people how to do this where they were not just using the internet to find stuff, but then they were gathering what they had found and creating uh, essentially a you call them gateways, or we call them guides to the internet. So, one, you know, for example, our students would do things like create the guide to personal finance resources on the internet, the guide to theater resources on the internet. Around that time, 93, I went back to school to start work on a PhD at the University of Michigan, uh, and I was teaching essentially the first courses on how to create inf internet-based content, 93, 94. And those courses were really amazing for people. It was so exciting because the internet was finally starting to kind of take hold on popular consciousness. And here were librarians. They're not exactly the most well-respected, well-rewarded, or even confident people. And the last course they would take in grad school took all those reference and cataloging skills and put them together where their class projects were creating products that people were using. And so it's like, wow, I'm making something, I'm, and I'm not even done yet with my class project, and people are asking me to come speak at events, and 
offering to pay me to help them. And, you know, one guy ended up becoming the VP at Excite. Remember Excite? Uh, One of the early search engines based on his work from our class. Um, So it was just amazing. It was just a way to put together all those skills. You know, it was such a fun opportunity to teach as well as, you know, for the students to participate. So um, I was doing that uh, as a doctoral student. Meanwhile, my company, Argus, had started creating content too. So now we found that people wanted to create websites. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm leaving something out. Because right around that time, the web hit. And so our students flipped from creating Gopher documents, documents to be made available by Gopher servers to HTML. Because wow, when the first graphic web browser, Mosaic, hit, it just really changed everything. The web had been around in VT100 mode, which is not very interesting or attractive or easy to use. But when that graphical interface hit with Mosaic, we just dropped Gopher, and it was just web from then on. We were helping companies create websites, and I had to make a choice uh, between staying on the PhD program and the business of uh, Argus, which was creating well-architected websites. Peter Morville had come, he'd been one of my students, and he'd come to work for us as our first employee. And he and I ended up uh, running the company, and Joe stayed in academia, Joe James. And uh, I went to Argus full-time, and then Peter and I uh, grew that business. It was just around what we called at the time web architecture. So this is now 1995, thereabouts. And what we were finding was there was a big rush to build websites. But we could already see that all the stuff we had learned in grad school about library science was just totally being ignored. Why? Why do you think that is? Because it's, you know, structure is one of those things that if it doesn't, it's not really visible unless it doesn't work. And so, first of all, the sites at that time were little. You know, they were a handful of pages, so it was hard to get lost. Right. But even then, things like how you would label options, menus were terrible. Search on your site was just barely a thought in most people's minds. And we could see that sites were going to grow. Information architecture was going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And so, while we started out working on websites... I remember telling Peter, I said, 1997 is the year that we can just do information architecture, and we don't have to do all the other stuff involved. And 1997 rolled around, and we were just doing information architecture. So we very quickly became, we'd like to think, the specialists in information architecture, and we were building our company to do just that. Uh, And I'm proud to say that in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was not like the easiest place to draw people, we had... Uh, about up to 40 people at one point, just as an information architecture consulting firm with a blue chip client list and recruiting people from overseas to come work for us. People like Margaret Hanley, who's here, who, who came from Australia to come work with us. That's what we were doing. Information architecture became really big. And right around that time, we also started writing a lot. So I mentioned that I'd had a student who became a VP at Excite. On the way to being a VP of Excite, he took his guide to, I think it was personal finance. Well, it was actually bought 
or he was hired by GNN. Do you remember GNN? No. Stood for Global Network Navigator. Okay. The first internet content plays, which got bought by O'Reilly, working in a fairly senior role at O'Reilly for a while before Excite then bought it from O'Reilly. While he was at O'Reilly, he hooked me up with Dale Doherty. It's one of the the partners at O'Reilly. And Dale was just launching a a new magazine, a web-only magazine, one of the first, called Web Review. And I became a columnist. And my column was called Web Architect. And uh, and then eventually Peter and other folks at Argus started contributing columns as well. But we played uh, that relationship into a deeper one, which was to write the information architecture for the World Wide Web book for O'Reilly, which came out in 98, first edition. And once that book came out, things really changed. And uh, I don't know that it's a great book. Um, I think it's a good book. But what it did through whatever luck, good timing, whatever it might be, is people needed a, a, a word or a term to describe what some of them at least sensed deep down was important but not being addressed, a gap. And we called it information architecture, and we said, well, here's its anatomy, here are its components, here's what we call them. And having it come out with O'Reilly was great because that got us in front of many different audiences, primarily tech-related. But those people often spoke different languages, and yet they sensed the same problem. So our book was successful because it gave, half the battle is giving people a common vocabulary to work on common problems when they start off with different vocabularies and can't communicate with each other. So suddenly a developer and a graphic designer could talk about structure using our book as something of a Rosetta Stone. That really helped a lot of people, it helped our business grow, led to you know two more editions and uh, at least two more editions. We'll see, maybe there'll be a fourth, who knows. What was the process like in writing that first book, the first edition? Well, actually, you know, it's funny because I had a contract to write it for John Wiley about a year or two earlier, and I just, I was like, it's, I can't do it. It's just too soon. And I, it was terrible because I had taken the advance and bought a, like one of the first laptop computers <laughs> that you could buy at a reasonable price, and then I had to return the money. Um, you know, so that was painful. But what was it like to write that? Well, you know, it really helped that we had been doing consulting and that we were early, early, early trying to communicate to people about this wishy-washy, somewhat abstract stuff. And that, it's hard to write about unless you've tried to sell it in person. And we'd been doing a lot of that, so the writing wasn't easy, but at least we could write the words that we'd already been saying. You can hear them in your mind and write them down because you've been saying them often enough. That was a great experience, and O'Reilly's a great company, and my company still partners with them today. Then 2000 hit, 2001, we had the downturn, uh, and companies like ours were a canary in the coal mine. In October of 2000, we were 40 people. We had just done our first information and last information architecture conference not far from here in La Jolla. And we were going to do it every year. We had our own IA conference. And I had organized with a couple other folks the first information architecture summit earlier the same year. So we were really riding high. 
And I'll tell you, we had 40 people and we had rented space for 80. And we were building it out. And it was interesting because the downturn hit that fall. And I, I'll still never forget how we had contracts with not startups, but blue chip companies like IBM and Morningstar and Northwestern Mutual Life. And suddenly they pulled them back. These were six digit contracts. And then the holiday season hit, which is a terrible time of year to try to get business. And then uh, I remember when the work first started coming back in February of 2001, the projects were over a tenth the size. So that's when we decided, uh, after much pain and, and suffering, to close the company down. So six months went by between our peak and shutting it down. We didn't want to go bankrupt. We decided we would shut it down. That was the right thing to do. Uh, so Peter and I uh, both became independent consultants, and I did that for most of a decade. That must have been a challenging transition. Well, you know, it was funny because, to be honest, when the company was at its peak was when I felt least a part of it. If, you, if, if one day you're in grad school and you're trying to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up, and then a few years later you're the, the primary owner, the majority owner of a 40-person consulting firm with payroll and uh, processes and systems and contracts and and personalities and politics. That's hard. That's really hard. And it's hard to know at a certain point how you fit. So I, I think my sweet spot at that age with that level of experience was with a company in the 10 to 20 range. And beyond that, you know, there's certain thresholds that companies reach where they just change dramatically in terms of culture and, per and personality. So I felt, you know, like I didn't really fit but that was a really good lesson. Because when I started my next company, I decided the key to making it work for me as the founder and the entrepreneur is to see it as a platform for what you want to do. You know, if you don't feel like you fit at your own company, then something's gone wrong. You've lost sight of what's important to you. If suddenly growth becomes the only goal, you know, that leads you out somehow, then maybe growth is not the right goal. So I decided to start Rosenfeld Media. And I mean, I can tell you now that right now I'd say I'd be happy if we were at 10 to 20 people. Maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. But beyond that, I don't know if I'd like it. But meanwhile, I get to do the things I, I like to do. And hopefully they have business value. So far, so good. So how do you stay on track on that platform? That's an interesting question. How do you make sure that the things you're trying have, they, that they're a fit? Right. Well, one of the things that businesses do when they grow beyond one person is they, they, you, you accept responsibilities for other people, namely the people who work with you and are dependent upon you. So... You know, as an independent consultant, I could do whatever I wanted, but I didn't have any infrastructure to support me, so I know that I need infrastructure to support me, staff and so forth. Um, but I have to involve them, I have to be good to them, I have to engage them, I have to make them feel that they're a part of it. So you can't make wild-ass, crazy business decisions that mean suddenly you can't cover payroll. That means you have to 
face the horrible, horrible feeling of laying people off. That's certainly something I never want to have to do again. So there's a certain built-in regulation there. So you, you keep in mind that it's a platform for experimenting and doing cool things, but you know you regulate it or you, you countervail that that urge with the fact that other people's lives are involved and their livelihoods as well. And have you experimented and how far do you take that without interrupting or disturbing any of the financial flow? I wish I could answer that in a concise and, and clear manner. I'm not sure I can. A lot of it is intuitive. A lot of it is you have to trust yourself. A lot of it is um, you have to play to your strengths. So, I mean, some of the stuff that I've done, if I was a numbers guy, I would never, I, you know, they'd be like, what, what are you, crazy? For, you know, my style is more intuitive, and so I've gone ahead. You might say that I, that's naive. You also might say that looking at things from a purely quantitative perspective is naive, too, because it's limited. So I try to seek... Um, mentoring and, and guidance from smart people that I know, especially ones that are different than I am, who might bring something from, of a different perspective to balance out mine. So I've got really great advisors, for one. Um, but, you know, it's been really fun to seek out niches and try to get there before other people do. And that's what we've been trying to do with Rosenfeld Media for the most part. So... My, my impetus for starting it was, I think it was around 2006. I had a couple conversations that year. One was with Peter Morville and one was with, um, oh, I can't remember, it might have been Tony Byrne, where I said, you know, I, I feel like we need a publisher who really is focused on user experience. And, you know, I should do that, not really knowing anything about publishing but knowing something about books and having been an author. And I remember the first time I had the conversation, I got really excited and it sort of grabbed me. And I know that feeling because it's happened to me before. My reaction was to shove that feeling back down, sweep it under the carpet because I don't know, maybe it's not a good idea. And then a couple months later, I think I was talking to Peter and it came back up and I think he could tell that I, that I realized at that moment it wasn't going to be something I'd shove back down and it'd grab me and I wouldn't let go of me. I still remember the conversation. So I started talking to traditional publishing houses and they said, oh, that sounds great. We already do some UX books. We'll, you know, maybe dip a toe in. And I'm thinking, well, it's a lot of work for me. Uh, I'm committed, but they're not committed. Why do I need them? Isn't publishing one of those business models that's already clearly in trouble. Back then, they were reliant on big box uh, bookstores and the, distribu and the distributors that support them, like Barnes & Noble, Borders. They're no longer around. That was, gonna, that was clear years ago that was going to happen. I don't know how long Barnes & Noble will be around. And then uh, companies like Ingram and, and uh, Baker and & Taylor, the distributors. It's a horrible business to be in, frankly, to rely on those partners who are in deep trouble anyway. So I decided to just do it myself, start a publishing company myself, and not ever even depend on the existing distribution networks for, for paperbacks. 
Um, we couldn't avoid Amazon, so we, we were in Amazon from the start, but most of our sales were direct and very word of mouth, very relationship driven. People already knew me or knew our authors in the community, which is a small community still, new to go to us. That was the real benefit of all the work I'd been doing for years, all the conferences I'd attended, all the people I'd met, was I had a really great network. So I can't, un I can't overemphasize how important that is. When you're trying to do something, especially something new and unproven, you need two things. You need enthusiasm to infect people. More importantly, you need people to infect. So well, if I came to you and I said, yeah, you don't know me, but I'm, I'm going to start a publishing company. Yeah, it'll be all right, I guess. Would you like to write a book? <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't sound too good. No. But if you have enthusiasm and you're excited and, and you know people, you can get them excited. It's amazing. People will, will follow all kinds of ideas and all kinds of, I mean, for, sometimes for the wrong reasons, sometimes evil ones, but I think this wasn't one of those. I got people to agree to write books for me who could very easily have said, what do you know? You've never published a book before. So we started signing people and built slowly. I had to keep doing consulting all the way to make ends meet while figuring out publishing. And it was hard. Uh, we certainly made mistakes. Uh, if you look at what we did with our first book, it could certainly be a lot better copy edited and just better edited overall, but the editor we had disappeared in the middle of the project, never to be heard from again. You know, that wouldn't have happened if, if I was doing it today, but there were certain reasons things like that happened that are primarily tied in experience. You just got to grin and bear it and hope other people do too. And I will say that the first book we published was with Indy Young, uh, Mental Models. Just That's went out of print. One. Yeah, it's a great book. We, re yeah. we reprinted it, I think, three or four times. And But Indy Young's next book, Practical Empathy, is going to be a Rosenfeld Media book. So even though she probably had the worst experience of any of our authors, she's come back again. And we've had a number of authors that have done multiple titles for us. I'm really proud of that. Um, and we're getting a lot of authors that have done their first book with another publisher who say, I really want to do it with you this time. I didn't really want to work with traditional publishers and I wanted to do it myself was because they don't really understand user experience. They're not practitioners. They're not believers. They're good people. I'm not trying to put them down. But they're in a very different business that rewards... And it's different. Well, it has different rewards. So if you're a traditional publisher, you're part of an operation that's putting out potentially hundreds, if not thousands, of titles a year. So you might put out competing titles on the same topic. It doesn't matter to you because all, you only need one to succeed in the marketplace. And that'll more than make up for the others. And so your books are commodities. Now that matters to the authors. And it's a, it's a, bad, it's a bad deal for an author to not get attention, to not get support, especially a first-time author. We only publish a handful of books a year. Each one of them is handcrafted. It's one of our babies, just like for our authors. We don't pit titles against each other. And we try to really eat our own dog food. So one of the things that we did when we first, before we published a book was, get this, it's a crazy idea. We did user research. 
So we first did a bunch of work on identifying among our target audience what are good features and bad features of the books that people use for the work. And we learned a lot. And it's not surprising uh, that Don't Make Me Think was the book that had you know, the most love, and a lot of it was because of what Steve and his team did in terms of features and design and so forth. So with Steve's blessing, he's on our board, we emulated a lot of what he did. And then we did testing. We got um, paperbacks of Indy's book printed as paper prototypes through Lulu. And we had the PDF, because we launched with eBooks from the very start. Uh, so we had the PDF laid out, and we did user testing on both. Liz Danzigo, who's uh, the newly minted creative director at NPR, was the person who led that. And we learned a lot. So we came up with both a cover style and an interior design that were fairly mature, but more importantly were designed to, especially the interior, to change in incremental ways over time. We never felt like we should ever have to do a major redesign, and that's because we did our homework up front. So if you look at our first book, Mental Models, and our most recent book, A Web for Everyone, and you look at the interiors, it's the same design. Now, colors are very different, typefaces have changed, lots of little things are different, but overall, it's the same design and the same brand, and I'm really proud of that. And the covers, of course, uh, are, you know, they, they really haven't changed because they were done so well from the start, but each individual cover is different. And those were, are done by a company called the Heads of State in Philadelphia, who um, are fantastic. They're so clever. It's such a joy to work with them. You know, we, we tune along the way. We change things along the way. But it's still the same design. We also did a lot of customer service up front because we were selling direct. And you know what? I think every company leader is irresponsible if they don't spend at least an hour a week doing service to their customers. Because, I mean, imagine if Comcast CEO <laughs> or United CEO would even forget do an hour of, of customer service direct. What about just look at the the data that's that's coming out of those customer service centers right. about what's wrong. Right. We found very quickly that we saw patterns where the problems were and were small, obviously, but you know we figured out what's what do we need to squash? What are people complaining about? Let's fix that. Where are things falling through the cracks? Let's fix that. And so very quickly, we ironed out pretty much every bug of substance in our customer service process that we could and that we could control. So I, I can't make UPS not screw up once in a while, but I can at least make sure we take care of people when that happens. Right. And I think the hardest thing is the consistency of the level of service over the years. Well, you know, the thing is though, if, you're, if, you have, if your business is fairly stable, that upfront work should scale for quite a long time. We also have the benefit of the same people being involved over that time, which I'm also proud of. Uh, even if we had different people doing customer service, we'd already done so much of it that what's left is almost down to very simple systems of, of fixing the problems that we can, then we can document so anyone could pretty much help any of our customers who are having a problem. 
So, so we started doing books. We were up to 20. And um, our whole focus um, initially was doing very practical books geared toward user experience practitioners. But an editorial agenda is just like anything else. It needs to change and adapt over time. And um, we had a meeting. Uh, our editorial advisors met, a few of us actually, Steve Krug and Ginny Reddish and uh, Mark Reddick, um, just fantastic people, um, came down to Brooklyn to our office and Mark facilitated a discussion about, around what the map of the domain would be in the coming years and how that might affect our editorial agenda. So like a lot of us are already seeing, the map really illustrated clearly that we're moving toward uh, a place where there's, that sits at the intersection of business and design. Uh, and actually we're already signing books that aren't just how to do prototyping, but how to develop uh, a strategy for an experienced design operation, how to help people who are not just UX people, but maybe product managers or even C-level people do a better job of running design organizations and developing products. So UX is converging with other areas and vice versa. So the market's changing. So while we'll continue publishing those more practical method books, we're really moving toward titles that are at that intersection of business and, and strategy and, and design. That's really exciting because that shows that the field is maturing and becoming more important. And it's not just that business people are coming to us, but we're becoming business people. And so we want to be there. But meanwhile, something else changed with Rosenfeld Media. And that was that we decided that being in the book business was, you know, it's a good business to be in. The books are hard, but you know, they're, they're still, business model's fairly straightforward, it's clear. But it left something out. And what we realized was that the value wasn't in books so much as in identifying and curating expertise. And so we pivoted about a year and a half ago and we started seeing ourselves as, a, as an expertise company in the UX space, representing very high-end expertise and getting that expertise out to market in the formats that make sense. And that's what a publisher really should be, is not someone who puts out books, but someone who figures out how to get expertise into the marketplace, especially today when there's so many ways to do that. So we launched a, a new line of business, which is consulting and teaching, where we match, we're up to 50 now, very well-known experts in the field with short teach a man a fish consulting and teaching engagements. Um, we've done probably around 35 of them in a little over a year. And already the revenue is probably about what books are. You know, it's about 50-50 at this point. It's been really fun because we don't just represent our own authors, but people have written for O'Reilly, people have written for new writers, a book apart, and so forth. Uh, to be honest, our, our book companies for the most part, not expertise companies. I mean, O'Reilly's trying to go beyond books, and they've done some really great things. But, you know, so we want to be the, the go-to expertise company in the UX space. And so we've been working with this crew of 50 people. And how do we get them? Once, once again, it's having relationships and enthusiasm. 
and uh, it's really great to be able to go to you know people who I admire with their good idea and with enthusiasm hey we haven't represented people like you before but we think we're ready to are you in and we're up to 50 we could be doing many more but I'm afraid of that number on the roster getting too large too quickly so uh, that's been really exciting and we're already changing and evolving those services. We started off just with short, you know, three to five day consulting engagements and short one to two day teaching engagements, on-site training, that sort of thing. And now a year later, we're starting to sell much more extensive practice development engagements where we match an expert, let's say on uh, responsive design or agile design the intersection of Agile design with a team at a large organization, as well as an, uh, a person on that team who is sort of the expert in waiting, the internal expert in waiting. And we have our expert do some initial diagnostics and then develop a learning plan that isn't just training, it isn't just consulting or coaching, it isn't just reading it's a, or other things. It's a mix of all kinds of ways to reach a team and really make sure that there's knowledge transfer. You know, the problem with the training session or a consulting engagement that's short is it might be fantastic, but then the expert leaves and you're wondering what's next. How do we maintain the momentum? How do we, you know, people people will come and people will go from our team in that in the next few months. How do we keep everyone moving forward and developing their expertise around a particular topic? So that's what we're trying to do now. Um, as well as keep doing the types of shorter engagements that we'd started with. And again, there's a niche there. There's people who run UX teams that don't really want to go to an agency. They already have a team, but their team needs some specialized expertise that they're not going to be able to bring permanently on staff. There's just not enough experts out there, and the experts don't necessarily want to go in-house. So this is a nice way to, to help those people. We're a trusted brand. I'm sure other people are doing similar things, but um, I think it would be silly for us not to try to make something out of the opportunity. And I saw, I think, on your one of your recent blogs, you're experimenting or at least thinking about the idea of instructional video. So that's a really interesting one. So like I said, my job as a publisher is to figure that stuff out. So let me give you, um, well, like we've been thinking about it for years, frankly. And some months ago, one of the big players in user-generated uh, instructional video content, I won't name names, carpet bombed our roster of experts, saying, could, we, could you create a, a video for us? And like, send the same email to you know, dozens of people on our roster. And of course, we all are on a list. <laughs> We're all talking about, well, did you get that email? Oh, I got it, yeah, what do you think? And I said, all right, everyone, Look, I mean, you know, it would be nice if they just contacted me. They didn't, whatever. But um, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. Now, instructional video is great, we think. I'm not sure there's a lot of great metrics about it yet, but we're all kind of shooting for it because it scales well. It might fill a, a niche that books don't fill, that in-person in teaching doesn't fill. It scales well. It's a problem with it. There's no business model. So that's why we got approached by that company who carpet bombed our roster of experts because they 
they don't have any metrics for success that are that they even understand. And so all they're trying to do is show their investors that they're grabbing for market share by getting the most content produced. And that's not a that's not really a business model. That's that's a big experiment. And I think we've seen a lot of the discussion and activity around things like MOOCs and so forth in the last year even showing a lot of, you know, chinks in the armor and the fact that, you know, there's a lot of retrenchment and uncertainty. The business model is uncertain and we might have to spend as much on producing one of those if we do it ourselves as we would on a book. But a book has a far better understood business model. And so today I don't think we're ready. That's one of those things where I think someone else has to go first and figure out the economics. There's also another problem is that if you're lynda.com you have a certain format that you that you do and that's it if people want to learn through a different format they have to go somewhere else if they want books they have to go to O'Reilly or Amazon or whatever each one of these content publishers the Lindas the Treehouses the Skillshares the O'Reilly Safaris and so on is a walled garden You've got to pay for a lot of stuff that you don't want. People don't necessarily want a format. They want learning. Basic pedagogical theory says that people learn in different ways. Where are we going to, in this walled garden model, put things together in ways that make sense for our learners around a particular topic? Now, large organizations like the ones we're trying to serve with our, with our consulting and teaching often have learning management systems that are supposed to be the the platforms for doing this but you know my understanding is that they're basically all crap you'd never want to have to interact with one of those if you were actually trying to learn or teach for that matter and I think there's a huge opportunity for someone to say we're gonna figure out a way to put things together regardless of format around certain topics so now I'm finding myself going back 20 plus years and saying in 1993, I was trying to teach people how to create guides to the internet. And in 2014, I'm trying to figure out how to help experts create essentially guides to certain topics <laughs> that are on the internet, except they're in walled gardens behind paywalls. But, you know, what goes around comes around. I've come full circle in many respects. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm always going to be in the same business. <laughs> What would you like your legacy to be? I don't know. Um, I don't think about it, honestly. Um, I'm very lucky to have lived at a certain time and had good timing and enthusiasm and the naivete to have enthusiasm and try new things. And I'm still pretty naive, even though I'm approaching 50. Whatever I've achieved, I've been really fortunate at, and I, 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 you know, and I just want to keep doing that. I don't want to have to say that's enough. That's this. I've now reached, you know, stage ten of the ten-step legacy gamification scale or anything like that. It's it, you, you know, I don't know. I mean, I just want to do stuff that's fun and hopefully sustainable as a business. And uh, legacy, I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess that's for somebody else to figure out if there actually is one, and that'll be after I'm gone anyway. Have your brothers or cousins read any of your books? Yeah, actually, they've been pretty supportive. Um, 
and I think they, we all come from families, both my cousins as well as my brothers, that were entrepreneurial. It really helps to have those role models of, in, uh, among your parents, especially. My father's business was furniture leasing. He started that in the 1960s when nobody had heard of it. And I remember him telling me, I started doing something that people just didn't get it. I had to explain it to them, and then they go, huh. And I remember thinking about that all the time when I was getting Argus up and running. And, and hey, information architecture, I don't get it. But when you finally explained it to them, they had that aha moment. And then you have the business, and you're the first to market. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, geez, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to ramble. This episode is sponsored by WeWork. Meaningful conversations are essential to the success of every entrepreneur, freelancer, and small business owner. At WeWork, we consistently strive to make meeting new people and having interesting conversations natural and effortless. For more information, go to WeWork.com. That's WeWork.com. UX Radio is produced by Laura Fedorov. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more.